All right, well, grab your Bibles and open them up to John chapter 15. Uh, We are getting back into our series today on the fruit of the Spirit, Um, and we're doing this, if you remember, one by one, uh, topically through Scripture. Uh, Two weeks ago, we were in 1 John, one of the epistles of John. Uh, Today, we're in the Gospel of John chapter 15. And so a couple of weeks ago, we began this um, um, talking about love. And as we said, love is sort of the overarching fruit, uh, the character and characteristic that best describes the Christian story. And so if you were with us for that, it was a lot more of a theological study of love. We didn't get into specific examples. Uh, One of the things that we said is as we go through the rest of this series, we will be um, building out the character of love through the other fruit. Which is to say, as we move forward in this series, we'll see a lot more of the fruit is easy to define Uh, but difficult to put into practice, right? Gentleness, kindness, easy to know what those words mean, hard to know how we're supposed to live those out. And so we'll be spending time practically working through what that looks like. But on the front end, and these first three fruit in particular, um, the concepts presented take some time to get our heads wrapped around. Now, this is both because these concepts are big and complex, but also um, because they have been simplified and distorted by the world that we live in. Right? We looked at this with love. Right? The biblical definition of love includes the care and concern that is part of our earthly definition of what love means. Right? God's love is not devoid of the emotion and the passion that love stories bring up. But God's love for his creation is also much bigger and much more robust than what most of us can imagine. It includes the eternal concern for the ultimate good of his beloved. Now today, the fruit that we're going to be looking at is also a bit hard to define. Um, The the second fruit in Galatians 5 is joy. Now, joy is going to take some work for us because the dictionary definition of joy has to do with happiness and pleasure. Joy is the result of good outcomes, right? You are joyful when things are going well. Now, the biblical definition of joy is not the antithesis of happiness, but we know that it has to be more than this. Because if you read through your Bible, we are continually told that we can and should find joy in our suffering. In the moments where we lack well-being. Right? A Christian can experience joy when we're not happy. James makes this clear in James 1. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy when you face trials. Find joy in suffering. It's going to take some work to get there, but that's what we're here for. So let's get into it. Uh, John 15, starting in verse 4, this is Jesus speaking. It says this. It says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So if you read through the book of John, Jesus uses these I am statements all the time. Um, These are sort of the organizing metaphors uh, for the gospel. Um, And so going through the I am statements in John is actually a really great study if you're looking for something to do. Um, They help to make a lot more sense of what Jesus is saying and teaching. Also the miracles, they all tie back to these I am statements that he makes. Um, Here, Jesus is using the metaphor of a vine and branches to describe the relationship that he has with his disciples. Now, in the first three verses, which we didn't read here, um, he talks about pruning and bearing fruit. He leans into sort of this idea that any rural farmer would understand, um, that there's a great deal of cutting away, right, of pruning. What looks like destroying the tree in the work of healthy growth. Um, Our family has been doing this quite a bit lately. We bought a a piece of property with some 100-year-old fruit trees that had not been pruned in a while. Um, And over the last month or so, we've probably cut off more branches than we left on the trees. But we do this because that's what you have to do to allow the nutrients to actually get to the branches, to the fruit. And so the metaphor of pruning helps us to see that earthly struggles or, or, or cutting off is part of the growing process. In God's plan, the difficult and the painful are used to produce more effective branches or disciples. Now often that's the main idea that people take away from this section. It becomes all about pruning. Um, but I think that there's a much bigger idea here that Jesus is pointing us to. Beyond the idea of pruning... Jesus makes the point that apart from the vine, the branches are of no value. He says, you can do nothing. Right? Once they're no longer attached to the source of life, they do nothing but die and are good for nothing but fueling the fire. And he even describes that they're gathered together and burned because that's all that they are good for at that point. And so along with this lesson of, of, of our struggles having meaning, we get this call from Jesus here to abide. Now, to abide is to stay connected to Jesus just as the branch stays connected to the vine. The life is not in the branch, it's in the vine. And in order for the life to go from the vine to the branch, they must stay together. Again, as we've seen, the moment that the branch is not connected to the vine, not only can it not get life, it cannot bear fruit, and it dies. Now, you might be asking, what in the world does this have to do with joy? Well, as we talked about in in the Sermon on Love, uh, we were created to be in relationship with God, to be in loving harmony. And the byproduct of this harmony, of abiding, is that we receive everything that we need for this life. Now, this goes beyond food and a place to live and companionship. No, in Christ, we have purpose, we have meaning. And maybe most importantly, we have coherence, which is to say our existence makes sense. We can live and we can work with a sense of why. Now, I stole this word word coherence, or borrowed it, well, let's say, um, from a book that that is um, an attempt to kind of make a path to joy. 
Uh, the book is called The Happiness Hypothesis. Uh, it's a fascinating book um, at how human beings have attempted to find happiness and joy um, in this world. And it pulls together sort of not only um, examples, but sort of the common teachings from all of the different cultures, from all sorts of different religions, uh, matching it with what social psychologists are discovering about human beings and what it means to be joyful. The guy who wrote it was a social psychologist, so at least in that realm he knows what he's talking about. Now, to be clear, the book that we go to for guidance and to know where to find joy is the Bible, um, but it is also helpful to see how people coming at it from a different angle um, come to conclusions that point back to God's ultimate truth. And one of the things that I found absolutely encouraging about this book um, is that the author, Jonathan Haidt, um, sees coherence as one of the necessary conditions for happiness. He defines it this way. He says, the word coherence literally means holding or sticking together. But it's usually used to refer to a system, an idea, or a worldview whose parts fit together in a consistent and efficient way. Coherent things work well. A coherent worldview can explain almost anything, while an incoherent worldview is hobbled by internal contradictions. And so he's using this word coherence in a way that is actually similar to how Jesus is talking about abiding, holding together, kind of all things flowing from one source. And so one of the implications of the metaphor of the vine and the branches is that abiding allows us to maintain a consistent worldview. Not because we've created it, not because we've discovered it, but because we have inherited a definition of the world that comes directly from the source of all things. We have answers given to us from God that give us a foundation for our joy. Height goes on then to point to this inherited condition as one of the only ways to truly find joy. He says this, he says, Happiness is not something that you can find, acquire, or achieve directly. You have to get the conditions right and then wait. Some of those conditions are within you, such as coherence among the parts and levels of your personality. Other conditions require relationships to things beyond you. Just as plants need sun, water, and good soil to thrive, people need love, work, and a connection to something larger. It is worth striving to get the right relationships between yourself and others, between yourself and your work, and between yourself and something larger than yourself. And if you get these relationships right, a sense of purpose and meaning will emerge. So what do we see in all of this? We see that to be able to find joy in this life, and ultimately even to be happy, we need coherence in our understanding of ourselves. We need a right relationship with others. We need a sense of purpose in our work or a right relationship to the world. And we need to know where we stand in relation to something larger than ourselves, our relationship with God. And he says, if you get these relationships right, a sense of purpose and meaning will emerge. Now, it is interesting to me, this might only be interesting to me at this point, but it's interesting to me that the very things that he's pointing out here, the very thing that he is kind of outlining of needing to exist and be right are the very things that God created good in the garden. These are the exact same relationships that we see broken and twisted at the fall. 
These are the right relationships that God placed us in, created for us to exist and flourish in. And so it makes total sense that in order for us to experience and understand the joy that we were created for, it requires us to go back to the life-giving vine. Because it is only through Jesus that we have access to God and gain the ability to have all of these broken relationships reconciled. Now, of course, even when you are in Christ, even when you are a Christian, um, all of these relationships are not right all of the time. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all of a sudden you became a Christian and everything in your life was perfect, all of your, is paved with gold right in front of you, and everything was taken care of? No, in this sinful world, we do not always have a coherent view of ourselves. Our relationships are often strained. Work is not always satisfying. And so much of our attempts to sort of find happiness, to make things right, um, are to kind of try to fix these on our own. Right? So if I can live authentically and find myself, then I'll have joy. If I can find the right spouse or friends or group to belong to, then I'll have joy. If I can find that perfect job that both pays me enough and is exactly what I want to be doing, and then, you know, right, what is this, the little Venn diagram? Never mind. Um, but there's this idea that if we get that right, then everything else will be perfect. Then I'll have joy. The problem is, is that none of these are going to have any lasting sense unless they, have, unless they can somehow be held together. And what we end up doing is sort of running from side to side, sort of trying to shore up the walls, trying to fix this, and then as soon as that is like at least not crumbling, we go over and try to fix this, and we spend all of our time juggling these. And if you're anything like me, feeling like you are losing the battle on all ends. And if you talk to people about it, they're like, it's about balance. Yeah, sure. Sounds great. It's about balance. But when it comes down to it, balance seems pretty much impossible. Failing at everything seems like a more realistic goal. But it's hard to find joy in that. And so Jesus' plea here in the vine and the branches is that rather than trying to fix everything on your own, prioritize your relationship with God. Getting that right is the only way to have coherence everywhere else. Even more than that, being connected to him allows us to find joy even when the rest of these conditions are not met. Right, again, joy in trials, joy in suffering. The other stuff might not be okay, but if we know who we are in Christ, let's see how Jesus describes it. Verse 8, he says, But by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Now, at first glance, that statement is pretty simple. Bearing fruit glorifies God. Bearing fruit proves that they are his disciples. But what Jesus is actually doing here is inviting them into a way of living in coherence that creates the conditions for joy. So he's saying, live this way, and all the other things will flow from this. And it begins by recognizing what we were created for. Right? In creation, human beings were created to be image bearers, those who worship God. And so our joy is always going to be connected to our worship. 
We see this purpose reiterated in the first question and answer of the Westminster Catechism. It says, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. In that we see glorify God and enjoy Him forever are not two separate tasks. They're bound together. And as we set this as the goal of our life, as we work towards this ideal, bearing fruit, our work will then be coherent with the purpose we were created for. We will be achieving what we were made to do. And this will produce a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction that we will otherwise lack in our lives. Now along with this, as we bear fruit for God's glory, it says we prove that we are his disciples. So it's worth asking the question, who are we proving this to? Well, we're not proving this to God. I want to make that clear. Um, he already knows exactly who we are. He knows the condition of our heart. He knows everything about us. We never have to prove anything to him. So if we are proving it to him, who are we proving it to? Well, in one sense, we prove it to other people. Um, there's an evangelistic component to this, right? So that they will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. There's this idea that the way that we live says something about the God who we serve. But more than anything else, bearing fruit proves it to us. And we need this proof because we are constantly wondering and doubting about our relationship with God. Right? The relationship broken at the fall, healed by Jesus on the cross, is not a relationship that we always feel comfortable in. But Jesus here promises to give us assurance and confirmation of our relationship to him through the act of bearing fruit. In other words, as you abide and press in more and more, it will prove to you that you belong. And the joy of belonging helps to make sense of all the other relationships that are still in the process of redemption. Now I say still in the process of redemption because when we understand ourselves in relation to God, this also places us as active participants, participants in his larger work. And so the life that we live and the work that we do is no longer detached from God and needing to sort of be valuable on its own. It's now leading somewhere. It's part of something much greater than us. That's why Paul can say our labor is never in vain. Not because you never do anything that is in vain. I'm sure there are plenty of things. I'll give an example. My kids are all into like knitting, crocheting, and things that I do not understand. Um, but there are times when you do a lot of work and all of a sudden the next day tear it all out. That is labor that feels like it's in vain. Um, but when we're attached to the larger work of God, what he is saying is everything is going somewhere. Everything is producing something, and so we don't measure it by just how we feel in that moment, that feeling of, I can't believe I have to do this all over again. Right? Learning to experience our life in relation to the assured end of joy, where this is all going, it allows us to navigate the less enjoyable parts along the way. Peter describes how this future joy carries us forward in what is one of my favorite sections of Scripture, 1 Peter 1, 
He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So everything is looking forward. It's there. It's assured. It's waiting for you. And then it says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So what do we see here? We have an inheritance. We have a joy that is waiting for us, ready to be revealed in the last time. And knowing that this is ours, and that our efforts are working toward this end, we can rejoice now, even as we face trials. And so even more than being sort of a a balm for our pain, joy sort of should become our demeanor. We should be a joyful people. It says, we rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Because every single thing that we face in this life is oriented towards a future redemption. Which means the worst thing that can happen to us in this world is refining us for glory. It ends up being used by God to make us holy. It's doing nothing but getting us closer to where we're going. And one day, he says here, we will experience the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Or as I like to think of it from the parable of the talents, the master saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And so joy is this overwhelming force that our lives are bound up in. And we trust what we do not yet experience, knowing that all the parts of this process of God are working out a full and complete joy. And if we learn to live backwards from the joy that is secured, it makes it so that we can actually find joy along the way. Because the things that we face in this life are not the measure. We should not ride the the wave of highs and lows with this world, allowing our momentary situations to determine our level of joy. Instead, we set our hearts on the joy set before us, allowing it to reframe every event as we endure towards God's established end. And so along with our suffering now being reversed, there is this very real joy to be found in the world that we live in, Jesus points this out to his disciples. Verse 9. He says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
So Jesus sort of takes one more step here. Um, He told them to abide in him, and now he's telling them to abide in his love. What's the difference? Well, Jesus is telling them to not only trust that he is the way, the truth, and the life, but to learn to love it. Right? Don't just accept that Jesus Christ is your Savior, but allow his gracious love to transform the way that you live, which is where Christianity changes. Right? There's a lot of people who know theology and who look the part, but who do not love God. And it's evident because the way they live out their faith is not joyful and free. It is harsh and fear-based And it produces fruit that is not patient or kind or good or gentle. What Jesus is telling us here is that if we abide in his loving, gracious care, then we begin with gratitude. We start by seeing everything that we have as a gift. And we live joyously because we have been invited into something larger than ourselves. Something that gives our lives meaning and value. And as we reflect on and enjoy the love that he has given to us, we become ourselves more joyful people. Now, in an interesting twist here, again, I find it interesting. We'll see if you do. Jesus ties abiding in his love to keeping his commandments. Now, I find that a little ironic. The reason I find that ironic is because people often put obedience to the law as a hindrance to loving God. I mean, even before when I was talking about those harsh people, right? You probably thought, yeah, I know them. Legalists. Those are the people who always want to tell you what to do. But Jesus wants to make sure we don't dismiss his commandments in the name of love. What he says here is they're one and the same. That if you begin to see your life as aiming towards God's purposes and working towards joy, then you will see his law as the way in which he lovingly helps you to experience his joy along the way. Keeping his commandments gives you the joy of the Lord in a practical, continual, present way. And then you can look at how following God's law has played out in your life, the fruit that it is producing. And you can see his love and grace in your life through it. Obedience then manifests the love of God in the pragmatic issues of life. And it helps us to see that God is in control of everything and cares about our families and our jobs and our communities. This becomes obvious when you, out of love, obey him. And so obedience is far more than duty. It's it's far more than just doing what you should do because God said you should do it. No, God's law is the outworking of his love for you. And while following God's way calls us to give things up and sacrifice, it is a cost that is well worth paying. And Jesus uses these terms. He uses these cost-benefit terms in Matthew 13. When he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. 
The idea, the idea being if you found something that was worth more than everything that you had, you'd be okay selling everything that you had because you were assured that you would end up with more in the end. In the same way, seeing who God is and what he has planned for his people, the joy set before us, conforms us to his will. It helps us to see that there is no other option. When we see the value of what he is offering, when we experience the joy of belonging and purpose and love, then we're happy to make the changes that he calls us to. We are willing to give up what is hindering us so that we can experience the joy that he has set before us. And so the selling all that we have in Matthew 13 is the giving of our life to God's ultimate purposes. It's conforming our lives more and more and more to his way. And we will do it joyfully if we believe that our joy is his goal. Right? If we believe that God wants what is best for us, then this is a lot easier to do. But often we feel like we're in an arm wrestling match with God, which, by the way, is not an arm wrestling match you're going to win. But the feeling is that I want this thing that God is telling me no to. Right? So God says be gracious, but if I'm gracious, somebody's going to take advantage of me. God says to stick with my spouse, but they don't make me happy anymore. God says to go to church and gather, but I have weekend plans. And there's a hundred other examples of the same concept, right? I want, but God says. And it's so easy for us to see this as God keeping us from our happiness. Because if what I want will bring me joy then God saying no is him keeping me from it. Unless what I want will not bring me joy. Right? If God knows better, if God knows what we actually need, I'll say this, if God knows everything, there's a chance that maybe he sees some consequences we don't see. Just got to throw that out there hypothetically. And so what we have to understand is that God desires our complete joy while we seek temporary fixes. And in calling us into his joy, we are being invited into a grace upon grace reality where every single thing we do is a gift from our loving God. And if we live our lives that way, we will be transformed by joy. This is how Jesus describes it in verse 11. He says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so to be clear, Jesus' end goal is for our joy to be full. Which means that he is unwilling to leave us with a half-hearted joy. He's unwilling to allow us to kind of get a little bit along the way that's going to hamper our ability to experience the fullness of joy that he has planned for us. And he is working us towards a place where all of the joy that we were created for is brought back into alignment. This is described for us in the last few chapters of the Bible as the new heavens and the new earth. 
They were echoed in the song that we sang this morning, right? No more tears. We see God's people dwelling with him in complete joy. Now, until we reach this fulfillment, joy is the way that we worship God for inviting us into his plan. Famous theologian once said, joy is the simplest form of gratitude. It's the way that we acknowledge God's kindness to us in creation and redemption. How we respond to the fact that his joy is in us. And a very simple way to do this as a church is to regularly talk about the grace of God in your life. To make that what is on the tip of your tongue. What are the ways that you are seeing his joy applied to your life? And as you do this, and as we do this as a church, we will build up our gratitude. We will have a bigger idea of what it looks like that we have received his blessing. And all of this will grow our joy. To the point that being part of God's family and work becomes much more powerful and valuable than anything else that is offered to us. Now the best example for this, really the best example for everything, this is church after all, is Jesus. Who faced pain and suffering because he knew that it led to joy. And this is described to us in Hebrews chapter 12 in such a beautiful way. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's talking about all those who have been part of God's people through time, that's our cloud of witnesses, and all the ways that they have lived this out. Then it says this, Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so what it says is that Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame because of the joy that was set before him. What is that joy? The fulfillment of God's plan of salvation and the fullness of joy at the end of time. That's where Jesus was focused as he was beaten, as he was spat upon, as he was nailed to the cross, as he breathed his last breath. He did it because of the joy set before him. And the author of Hebrews says, we too should lay aside every weight and run with endurance, knowing that God's plan for our joy is good and worth whatever we have to go through to get it. Of course, Jesus is not just an example in this. He is the founder, the author, and the perfecter of our faith. Which means the only reason that we can have joy is because he did the work to make us his. He is the means by which we can get our relationship right with God so that it can flow down into everything else. And so every week we come here together to remember the source of our joy. The reason why we've been invited into God's work of redemption. And every week when we come here, we take communion. And we unite with Christ. We, we abide in him, knowing that no matter what this life might bring, if we are in Christ, our joy is secure. So as you come to the table today, 
come joyful. Celebrating the work of Christ and the plan of God and the many blessings that you already receive. And commit to living a life of gratitude, recognizing all that you have been given. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have given us access to this eternal joy. This joy that is bigger than anything in this world, that is bigger than anything that might be happening, that cannot be changed. God, we pray that you would help us to have a better understanding of what that actually means. Because in our day-to-day existence, a lot of things steal our happiness. A lot of things make it feel like we are trapped. A lot of things make it feel like we are failing. A lot of things make it hard for us to have joy. And so we just pray that you would continue to to build in us an understanding of who we are in you, what it means to be yours. That we may invest in that relationship rather than trying to fix everything ourselves. God, you are so good to us. And even as we fight you along the way, you continue to press through, you continue to pursue us, you continue to you continue to just chase us down. We thank you for not allowing our sin to separate us from you forever. And thank you for the work that you've done to bring us back. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.